Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers, plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all. Well, we're glad you're here for the Media Project. It's a half hour of commentary and analysis on what's going on in the news media in recent days. And we hope that the thoughts of some veteran journalists among you will be enlightening. I'm Rex Smith, former editor of the Times Union, currently at The Upstate American. Judy Patrick, the former editor of the Daily Gazette, now vice president of the New York Press Association. And Ira Fussfeld, publisher emeritus of the Kingston Daily Freeman and affiliated publications, and Dr. Alan Shartok, he being the CEO of Northeast Public Radio, a columnist, commentator, professor, etc., etc., etc. That's a great line from the King and I, you know, the great Yes, musicals. it is. You have more hair than Ewell Brenner, though. Who are we talking <laughs> to? No, you, you All of us here. All of us Judy especially. <laughs> very nice, very nice. Dr. Shartok, you being the political scientist, get to start us off on this because we're talking about the politician that we journalists sort of, I hate to say, love to hate. But here's a question about Trump. Donald Trump, the former president, can't the media quit Trump? There has been so much coverage in recent days about Donald Trump because of the apparently pending criminal charges here, there, and everywhere. Yet, is it getting to be too much? I don't know, but I do think that a lot of people have some characters in public life who they just enjoy not liking. And I think Donald Trump is one of them. I don't think people like him, and I think they go out of their way to not like him. And that's why you are asking your question, I suspect. But isn't there a valid reason for there to be so much coverage of Donald Trump? Because if he's going to be the first former president ever to be indicted, that would be a big deal. You are so right, Rex. And that's why we have you on this panel, because you bring us insights that we might not have otherwise. <laughs> that was a really tough one to come up with. <laughs> but, you know, you know, Trump broke this news himself. And we, as we speak, we still don't know if it was accurate. We know he was inaccurate because a week ago Saturday he said, I'm going to get indicted and arrested on Tuesday. That's right. That didn't happen. When that story broke, and I happened to be watching MSNBC, it was like 7.30 or 8 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday. You could just see the bells and whistles all go off. Well, here's what he said. We got to cover it. We got to get in all these guests we can get, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And subsequently, we found out that Trump didn't deliver. Surprise, surprise. And the question that I had is, did we, the media writ large, fall into the Donald Trump trap again? As much as we said we would be more discerning regarding Trump, he puts out the this tweet, well, it's not a tweet because it was on Truth Social, and everybody ran with it, and it became the big story of the day, if not the weekend. And I'm wondering whether we overplayed it right from the get-go. Well, to get to the nub of this, let me ask you, Ira, what would you have done in that I case? would have fallen into the trap. I spoke to somebody who happened to have been watching the same show, and she said, why did they cover it the way they covered it, given we know who produced yeah. the material? And in hindsight, I think we made a big mistake. Should it have been reported? Yes. But there were no supporting documents. 
he was guessing, and now it, it seems that he mainly did it to help him fundraise. Yeah, but here's, now Judy, you're going to be able to answer this because if that tip had come to your newsroom, you probably would have said to the reporter covering courts, before you publish anything, follow up on this. What's going on here, right? Exactly. And what you do, even though you've got the former president of the United States saying something, given his history, you have to double check it. And his support staff came out later and said, well, there's no substance to what he's saying. When I first heard the story, I thought often people who are going to get indicted or who have to come in to be arrested, especially if they're high profile, they get a heads up. Lawyers will be notified and they right. know they're going to have sure. to go to New York on Tuesday. So I thought there wasn't anything like that. So you, one of the questions you always ask reporters to ask their sources is, how do you know this? How did Trump know this? How was he alerted? And in defense of newspapers, which I always do, the newspaper coverage of this was much more sedate than the cable news. And it I mean, was on page 24 of the New York Times. Yeah, ends up being accurate. And in the context of the story, it said that Trump's staff revealed that he didn't really know this. But the problem is, of course, if you are rushing to go immediately with the story and bring on the commentators right away, which is what cable TV does, you ignore that crucial reporting step, which is to say, really? And so this got blown out of proportion by our focus on television, by our focus on commentary instead of analytical, thoughtful reporting. Would you have run the story based on his comment? Well, I think what you're saying is page A24 is probably yeah. correct. Uh, you run it and say Trump said this, but his own staff conceded that he didn't really have notification. He had not been, as Judy says, told to surrender. That's the term. And the lawyers have said, Trump's lawyers have said that he's not going to be handcuffed and there's not going to be a perp walk. He's going to surrender himself and he will appear before a gaggle, but it's not going to be... Uh, it's dramatic. But, but somewhere in between his initial release and page 24 in the next day's print edition, you've got a full day of digital coverage. Are you, are you going to update your website? To... No, I think there would have been time even for MSNBC to make a phone call before they just trumpet this story and make a big <laughs> pardon the expression. Trumpet. <laughs> and make a big deal out of it. And they did it for days. I mean, we're yeah. days and days. It wasn't just one day. I, maybe I could have swallowed one day, but we're talking four or five days. And actually, it's possible that he could not be indicted. The grand jury may vote not to indict. And there are reasons that people put stuff out into the stratosphere that may not be truthful. I mean, you know, you may want some attention. You may want something like that. Or you may want $1.5 million is what he, he earned from his appeal, his email blast he sent out to right. his regular donors, and they forked over some money. It's, I almost think it's a fraud because he's saying he's going to get indicted, and that's why they gave him money. He didn't get indicted. Hey, give me my money back. Ah, now there'd be a thing, get the FTC involved in a fraud investigation, <laughs> one more investigation of Donald Trump, you know. <laughs> but it does show the continuing chaos that is, of course, the trademark of Donald Trump in the media and everywhere else. You know, it's part of why we're still talking about Fox News and Dominion in the lawsuit. Well, not why we're talking about Fox News, but about that particular Fox News case. Dominion voting system suing Fox News over airing false election claims. Again, this goes back to Donald Donald Trump's lies, which permeate, Alan said, the stratosphere, is actually the atmosphere. I don't think they're that high. But uh, <laughs> Point well taken, Rex. <laughs> <laughs> or radio beams bounce off the ionosphere, so maybe it's up there. But the fact is that we are so reactive to this because of who he is 
he's now a former president, but when he was just a celebrity running for office, we got into this habit of just taking seriously what he says. It's very hard to resist the front runner for the Republican presidential nomination. And the latest poll I saw shows that 50 some percent of Republican primary voters want Donald Trump as their nominee. Well, here's the other part of that, and that is that he is a bad man. And I think a lot of people know that he's a bad man and then becomes a very attractive news item. Yeah, because it's, it's sort of like a villain, right? We, yeah. When you think about how we tell stories, we like good guys and bad guys in our stories. And journalism needs to be all about nuance, about the gray areas where we really lead our lives rather than the black and white that makes interesting stories. Well, he, we've long made fun of him and he's not that smart and all the rest. But he's diabolically smart as it relates to media. He, he knew by posting that item on Truth Social, he knew exactly what kind of coverage he was going to get. He knew exactly that it would be dominating the news cycle for at least the weekend, if not longer. And he wanted to get out, not only get out in front of it from a political standpoint, but he knew that he was going to get this kind of coverage because he knew that the media wouldn't be able to help itself. So, Ira, what should the rest of journalism been doing about his advance here? Well, you know, I'm old fashioned. I would have, with the luxury of not having to worry about a website and not being a broadcaster, I would have put it on page 24 like the New York Times did. Although I, I wish I had that many pages. <laughs> 24 would have been the back page of the sports section. And this coverage also served to pressure, if that's possible, the district attorney, Alvin Bragg, down in New York City. As people step forward and talk, as you're seeing Republicans do, they're getting a lot of coverage as well as they denounce any efforts to indict the president as they offer ideas that perhaps they were going to investigate the district attorney in New York, as far-fetched as that sounds. So that was part of it. And again, we see all the sidebars. We see the related stories. Tell us more about Alvin Bragg. Tell us about the perp walk. I mean, there's a multitude of stories that are being written to perpetuate this narrative. So does it come to editors and producers saying, give us stories on what is interesting people, what is drawing folks' attention? The great example is, as you're saying, the story that profiles of Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan DA. This is what is fundamentally going on in people's minds are thinking about this, or is the press actually putting it there? How do you decide? Are you responding to the reader interest, or are you creating it? Well, in this particular story, the pump was primed a day or two before the Trump comment by stories that broke, saying that all of the various law enforcement agencies had gathered together to make plans for this kind of an event and how they were going to be handling security. So the whole notion of him being arrested and will there be protests and how big will they be was actually launched before the Trump comment so that he could piggyback off of that. And then you had stories about the protests outside the, the courthouse where you had reporters interviewing reporters because there was no one else right. there. So what comes first, the chicken or the egg in this yeah. situation? Isn't that great when reporters interview reporters? <laughs> <laughs> it's just really embarrassing. You know, it really goes to an issue that is raised by the Fox Dominion lawsuit as well, and that is the journalistic responsibility to be cautious with explosive or even implausible allegations. That's really what's at root of the Fox defense of its lawsuit filed by Dominion. That is, Fox says, listen, this stuff may be implausible and it may well be true that Rupert Murdoch and our primetime personalities said, we don't believe the allegations raised by the Trump campaign that Dominion voting systems was behind the fraud, but we have a responsibility to get it out there. 
versus the notion that Dominion is advancing, that it was reckless and irresponsible for them to just air all of this stuff that came out without clearly providing the context that every other news organization did, saying there is nothing to back up this Trump allegation. Well, if I understand, the there was a hearing, and even as we speak, the judge has not made a decision, although it may be made before this program airs, as to whether or not this is going to go to trial or whether the judge is going to arbitrarily decide one way or the other. But one of the arguments that the Fox people are making is that this is opinion. The uh, notion of Dominion machines, et cetera, et cetera, is somebody's opinion, and we, the Fox, should not be held liable for what an opinion is. And I would accept that argument. That That's the same thing in print. We, we should not be held liable, I would argue, for something that somebody says, and we're just printing it. However, the text that we see from the behind the scenes where Hannity and Carlson and Ingram were saying, we don't trust this guy, we don't believe this guy, that's something that injects a new element into that opinion notion as to whether they were being reckless by airing this opinion. That is actually the standard, of course, yeah. that New York Times v. Sullivan sets, reckless disregard right. for the truth. So isn't it reckless for them to go ahead and air this content if everybody agrees that it's fake? Including them. Including them. Yeah. If they know that it's fraudulent, then the claim is that it was reckless disregard for the truth that motivated Fox to go ahead with this because they're trying to get back their audience that they were losing in those days to Newsmax and One American News Network. Now, let's be clear. Reputable news organizations don't air every allegation you hear. If we printed every call that came in of someone That's alleging something, we always check it out and say, we're not going to put it in the newspaper unless... We know that there's some substance behind it. And even with opinion journalism, if you state what you think is a fact in an opinion journalism piece and it's not a fact, then you're subject to libel just like anything else. Just putting the, the label opinion on anything doesn't clear you for a libel lawsuit. So allegations, we get them all the time. And you hear them at town board meetings or county board meetings or school board meetings. The reporter who comes back to write the story, they're not going to repeat every allegation because sometimes those allegations are simply not true. It's why you want to have an experienced editor back there to talk to this young reporter and say, no, 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 you don't want to put that out there. You may have heard that at the town board meeting, but that is not a part of this story. Some people will say, well, you're censoring, you know, we call that editing, actually, when you're being responsible with your coverage. You know, here's one of the things that is also now alive out there, and that is a lawsuit filed by a producer on Tucker Carlson's show who also worked for uh, Maria Bartiromo who says that she was told by Fox attorneys not to hire her own attorney and said that she should not be too candid in what she says. They basically, this person whose name is Grossberg, Fox tried to bar Ms. Grossberg, what is her first name, from presenting her allegations, from disclosing confidential discussions because it would reflect poorly upon Fox. She is now suing because she says, hey, they're setting me up to be the fall guy here. I'm the person who they're going to say is to blame for letting some of this information get onto the airwaves. It's interesting that she came forward, but I can understand why. I'm, I'm surprised that more Fox News producers haven't come forward, although we've had this discussion about people who work at Fox before. Right. But she describes a very hostile work environment for her as well. And clearly, if her allegations are true, the Fox is looking for fall guys. This is a huge lawsuit. could cause major damage to them. They'll survive, I'm sure. But it would be nice from their perspective to hang the blame on one news host who they want to be portrayed as being reckless. Right. 
And Fox takes the position, which sounds simple and appealing, is that what matters is whether the media accurately reports allegations, not whether the underlying allegations are true or false. I think most of us would say that the job of journalism is to, as much as you can, give people a picture of what is true. And that includes then sometimes not reporting stuff that you know to be false. And as a former editor, Rex, you had to make that kind of call all the time, right? You do. As Judy says, it may be on something as seemingly simple as covering a meeting, but you're deciding what is true, what is not. You know, I've often told the story of when George Pataki became governor and made the great claim that he had turned around the economy of New York State in the first nine months in office. Mm. Well, at that time, you know, New York was the fifth largest economy in the world. And he made this claim before a big audience at the Business Council of New York State annual meeting up at the Sagamore. So our reporter who was there I was the managing editor at the time. Our reporter was there to cover it, and he wrote, Pataki said he turned around the economy. Because he said it. Because he said it. In fact, we then finally did the story and came up with seven different indices for how good the economy was, and we found out that the economy actually was performing better under Mario Cuomo than under George Pataki. And that is not to say that Cuomo was great and Pataki wasn't. It's just that he hadn't, in fact, turned around the economy of New York State. But That's there will the be truth. somebody listening right now who say, no, no, Rex, you know, you guys were always kissing the butt of Mario whether or not you were. I mean, there will always be somebody who will make that kind of claim, right? Right. They will. And each side will claim that for the other. You know, there are plenty of people who thought that we were in Pataki's pocket when we were reporting, you know, for example, the state putting in funding for global foundries, Mm. which at that time had a different name. So the story that Pataki made that claim ran in the Times Union and elsewhere, presumably, And then you did a follow-up X number of days later clarifying the story. So two points come to mind. One is people may have only seen or remember the first story in which he was not challenged. And secondly, the Times Union caught up and fixed it. But who knows how many, if any, other news outlets did not have the wherewithal or the smarts to go and find the same material. And thus Pataki's initial claims were allowed to largely hang out there. That is exactly right. And there was nothing you could do to fix that. Except that it took us a much longer time to get that second story out because as I said, I was not the editor at the time, and the editor didn't want to do the story. So, so it, it was longer than Who a day was or the two. editor? It was time. two years. Two years. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we had a lot of data to back up and decide how good the story was. So uh, the story was. said, You remember that story yeah, remember we wrote that? two years ago? <laughs> it's not true. That is the challenge of all covering politicians. Even when they're announcing a grant or a project, you always have to dig deeper and find out you know, where the money's coming from, what it's really going to be spent on, are any contracts being awarded. It's complicated and it takes time. And as we all know we have less time or fewer people to do those kind of stories anymore. This has given rise, though, to this whole industry of fact-checking, right? We have PolitiFact, which is run by the Pointer Institute in Florida. The Washington Post has a great fact-checking operation run by a, a great reporter named Glenn Kessler. And these operations take 
these statements and literally research them one by one and rate them. But again, to Ira's point, it comes out long after the yeah, fact. And, and the organizations that you mentioned are talking about national or international issues. I wonder how, how uh, a local media who doesn't have a fact checker, barely has a reporter, how much gets in those publications that does not get checked. Exactly. And how capable are the reporters of doing it? These reporters who are doing fact checking are extremely experienced. When PolitiFact first emerged, I looked into whether the Times Union should become the New York outlet of PolitiFact. That was what they were looking into in those days. And they had certain standards for how many reporters and editors we would have to assign to the task to earn that brand. It was cost prohibitive, I thought, because of the amount of effort, staff effort that would be required, because that is really intensive reporting by the time you dig out all that stuff. Remember, we used to look at campaign ads and do an evaluation of, of whether they were true or not. I don't yeah. even, I don't see much of that anymore, but especially TV ads, we would take a hard look and almost review them like you would a TV show and say, this may be true or this is somewhat true, but then you get so many ads and they're coming in all different venues. You see them on social media, you see them delivered to your house, and so it's hard for the reporter covering the campaign to keep on track. Maybe that would have helped with the uh, George Soros. With the George Santos. Yeah, George Soros. I'm sorry, by the way, on this show a couple of weeks ago, I kept denouncing George Soros. And (laughs) I got a phone call from my successor's editor, Casey Seiler, saying that his wife had pointed out, hey, Rex is really losing it on the media project tonight because I was denouncing George Soros. Well, Sorry, it's a great please. that they were listening. <laughs> well, yeah, and Soros is in the news again because the Republicans are somehow, some far-fetched way, blaming him for what Alvin Bragg is doing in New York City in, in terms of the indictment. It's not true. It's part of this anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that you know just keeps going round and round. And so uh, Soros is a common name among the people in the news business because he is so high-profile when it comes to anti-Trump stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And holding George Soros to account for Alvin Bragg means you would have to hold George Soros to account for, say, David Soares here in Albany County, D.A., because he was elected initially with funding from George Soros. So Those last names are all like yeah, <laughs> Soros, Soros, Santos. Anyway, but you're, you're right about Santos. The election of George Santos as a congressman from Long Island and Queens is actually in part a reflection of the fact that you just can't get to all the lies that you're confronted with as a journalist these days, right? What can you do? You you need to be, of course, monitoring the hyper-local news sites. In his case, this little newspaper whose publisher had wanted to be a congressman himself that first pointed out some of the inconsistencies in the Santos case. But you need to be doing so many things as a journalist to stay on top of the epidemic of lying that has become just such a part of American politics. Although I will say that the fact-checkers, the national ones at least, are a little less busy now that Donald Trump has left office. I mean, they used to rack up 100 a week at least. You don't see that with the Biden administration. It could be that Joe Biden's not out there talking as much as Donald Trump is. But they're even when he talks, he lies. <laughs> <laughs> well, there certainly have been allegations, obviously, from the right that Biden is misstating facts, etc. So I, I still yeah. believe that there is a need for fact checkers. Oh, definitely. The fact is, there are just not as many of them. Certainly not. Of them. I mean, there's a good news, bad news about these fact checkers. The good news is for those who want to not want to be checked, the newspapers have fewer people. So the story may not even get in the paper to begin with. The bad news is there are fewer people, and so the story may not have gotten in the paper to begin with and thus can't be fact-checked. You know, one of the things that a news organization could do 
to make itself more available to track some of these things is to be more aggressive about news tips, to be more intersecting with your readership so that people know how to contact you to give you items that you need to know. You know, you may find it very difficult. Now, you may think WAMC ought to check something, just send an email to Alan. Alan at WAMC.org, and Alan will pass it along, right? Sure. But most people don't think of it that way. And if you actually have on your website, tell us what's going on, and then, of course, again, to the point, you have to have the staff to be able to follow up. I mean, I I remember when when I started at my old newspaper and we were fully staffed, that there was a position on the city desk. In addition to the copy editors, it was called city desk assistant. And there were a number of clerical chores that that person did, including she was the one who took the phone call from the person who says, I've got a hot tip for you. Well, that, that position doesn't exist anymore. Most of the editors don't exist anymore. And, the, and those who remain don't have the time to answer the phone and look into these things. So, I I mean, we're in a vicious uh, circle because there are times when these tips are important and valuable and need to be reported, but they get passed along because we don't have time to look at them. It's even worse. Many websites, they won't even have a phone number on them. Even uh, media organizations, or if you want to reach a specific reporter by email, you can't find their email address. Well, that's malpractice. One of the reasons you do it is so your your company doesn't get, get hit by spam, though. But it's alarming the number of media organizations that don't make it easy for you to contact them by phone or email. The New York Times. If you want to try to reach a New York Times reporter, you really have to know what their email address is because you don't just have that listed on the story. A lot of news organizations do put the reporter's email address right right there on the story. Intentionally in order to get those tips and to get the reaction that is ought to be part of the journalism ecosystem is to have interaction with the people that you're writing for or writing about. When I was in the early 90s, I was the editor of the Troy paper, The Record, and I inaugurated this $5 per news tip that- uh, You would I've, give people $5 I per tip? I would give yeah, people we five, Well, if it was published, right. if we actually then could produce a story based on the news rich. tips. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was the problem. We kept getting phone calls from other reporters. No, it ended up being, th- our lawyers counseled against it somehow. There was some reason why we would might be inducing people to fraud or something. Well, and the lawyers always counsel against everything. <laughs> Especially when they're dealing with newspapers. So yeah, right. don't, don't publish that. No, 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 absolutely. It may be true that, as they say, ships are safest in port, but that's not what ships are designed for. And the same thing, of course, is the way an editor has to handle advice from a lawyer. You're, you're safest if you don't publish anything, but that's not why we're out there, you know? That's anyway. such a good point, Rex, this whole idea of when do you listen to your lawyer about what you do? And uh, you, you make a very fine point because we would expect that nothing would ever get published. But if Fox News, to the point earlier, had listened to their lawyers who surely would have been counseling them against publishing, airing some of these ridiculous allegations, what the revelations that we have seen in the discovery process of the Dominion lawsuit against Fox is that it was the on-air hosts who ran the place, who run the place. Tucker Carlson is the most powerful figure in Fox News, not Rupert Murdoch, and not Susan, started to say Suzanne Summers, that's an actress, whatever, whatever her name is. <laughs> She's the president. Ingram. No, no, no Laura no, Ingram. No, There's the a vice president. Suzanne Summers. Oh, Suzanne's got, well, yeah, Murdoch right. has got his hands tied. He must be on his honeymoon. <laughs> Age 92, he's just wed, or they, they haven't wed, he's they, now engaged, they haven't married wed. for the fifth time. Uh, More power to him. How about that? And with that point, folks, we have to end on the sex here, I tell you. 
I, uh, that's a good way to end the show, isn't it? There's, there's a lot of good more. jokes to tell, but I'm not going to do it. Thank you, Ira. <laughs> that's uh, all for the Media Project. Ira Fussfeld there, Judy Patrick, Alan Shartok, and I'm Rex Smith. Thanks to our producer, David Gustina, for guiding us through all of this, and to you folks for joining us here on the Media Project. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press.